Welcome to Notes from America. My name is Petrina Engelke, and frankly, I had no idea where a seemingly easy research about the U.S. election would lead me. Wow. As an immigrant from Germany, many things I learned along the way, hmm, let's say, surprised me. And not only that, when I published the result in German, as usual, it just didn't seem right. I mean, Germans are not going to be voting on November 3rd. It's you. Well, I really hope it's you. I really hope you will vote. Because if I learned one thing from looking deeply into how this works, it's this. Every single vote counts. So if you haven't done so already, please register to vote. Now. And then let's talk about how to vote safely while there is a pandemic out there. Or what else other than the virus might keep people from voting and who could possibly benefit from that. And also what you can do about it. There's going to be two parts of this podcast. In this first part, I'll interview Elaine K. Mark. She's an expert on electoral politics and the director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution. And the second part will feature Kat Kelvin. She's a voting rights expert and the founder of Spread the Vote. Both interviews are from July. One little thing before the interview starts. Actually, it's the opposite of that. I mean, it's not really a small thing. Gerrymandering. We mentioned that in the interview, but we don't explain it. So here we go. Some of the voting districts have a really weird shape. Commonly known as congressional districts, they outline the communities whose votes will send one person to Congress, for instance. You'd think these districts would look similar to, let's say, state borders on the US map, mostly rectangular, maybe following a river on the outskirts of a town or following a big street between a city's neighborhood, or something like that. Instead, some of these look like the pieces in a puzzle that's pretty hard to solve. The very first one looked like a salamander. Well, that's what people say. To me, it looks more like a dragon. I'll put it in the show notes so you can have a look too. Anyway, That salamander gave gerrymandering its name. The salamander-shaped election district designed to help Elbridge Jerry and his party to stay in power in 1812. So, not a new thing at all. But what's an odd shape got to do with all that? Well, turns out you can draw these lines in a way that ensures you will win an election in that particular district. Let's say you're a politician in your state's government and all you want is to stay in power. However, unfortunately, there's a large area in your state that voted against your party. Hmm. So what you do is you split that group of people up 
And then you draw the voting district lines in a very curvy, odd way around the places that they live. So that these voters who voted against you become a minority within a neighborhood of people who you think will definitely vote for you. And voila, you win. Or you draw a different but also weirdly shaped line so that all these voters that are against you are in one district and nowhere else. So yes, your opponents will win one district, but all the other districts are gonna go to you. That's gerrymandering. Elaine K. Mark and I will discuss later if and how that may contribute to a divisive atmosphere. But first, we'll talk about what states do to make it safer to vote, or even harder than before. Joining me now is Elaine K. Mark. She's the director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution. And she has been researching electoral politics and its reform in the United States and elsewhere. Ms. K. Mark, welcome to Notiznaus America. Well, thank you for having me, Petrina. Let's just dive into your work. Um, as if these election, the upcoming elections weren't exciting enough, now we also have a pandemic. And that means all the states of the United States have to really think hard about how to ensure everybody can vote. As I understand, at Brookings, you have assessed this situation and you issued scorecards to all the 50 states. So before we talk about the scores, can you in general say which efforts do ensure a safe election process? What did you look at? Well, we looked at one particular aspect of voting, which was voting basically from home. In other words, voting by mail in your home, uh, getting an absentee ballot, or in some states, they send the ballot right to you. And that's obviously the safest way because you don't have to go out and you don't have to go to a polling place where there are a lot of strangers and perhaps wait in line to vote. So clearly the safest way to vote in a pandemic is to vote from home. And that's what we looked at. We looked at the procedures in all 50 states and the District of Columbia for voting from home. And we looked at how easy or how difficult the state made it. And then we assigned uh, simple letter grades, A, B, C, D, and then F for failing. And what would be some of these measures? What makes it easier? What makes it harder to vote? Well, some states mail automatically to every voter a, an application for an absentee ballot. And that obviously makes it easier. You don't have to remember to request one. And so that's something that we gave a lot of points for. Um, some states, when you submit your absentee ballot, require that you have it notarized or witnessed. And that, of course, makes the voting process very difficult. So we took away points for states that did that. The states that got the most points were the seven states that includes the District of Columbia, that plan to mail an actual ballot to all their voters in November. 
And this is a system that's been used for two decades in the state of Oregon and for many, many years in other states as well. The voters are used to it. There are very few in-person polling places. And that is obviously the easiest way to vote from home because you don't have to remember to request a ballot. But not many states are ready to do that. Not many states really have the capacity to do that. So that's why it's only seven jurisdictions, but one of them is the state of California, which is the biggest state in the union. Hmm. Okay. Seven out of 50. That doesn't sound very promising, though. <laughs> well, but remember, the other states have procedures for getting an absentee ballot. Those seven are the states that simply send a ballot and don't require that you've asked for one. Many of the other states uh, have you request an absentee ballot, one is sent to you, and then you vote absentee. And so it's not quite as bad as seven out of 51. But it, it gets increasingly harder. I understand there are a lot of little and big things that you can implement or take away to either make it easier or harder to vote. And one thing I was wondering about um, when it goes by mail, there are some really remote places in the United States that don't really have an address, for instance, on reservations. So how do states prepare to get ballots or the request forms out to these people? Well, the United States Postal Service serves every single person in the United States, and they do that regularly. The Social Security Administration gets payments out to people in the mail. Um, you know, the, the government is quite familiar with doing business through the U.S. Postal Service, and the Postal Service, you know, serves remote areas of Alaska. It serves Indian reservations. I mean, it, it serves the country. I think... Getting the mail to people is not really the problem. The problem is more that when people move around a lot, the address that the state might have from the last election may not be the right address anymore. And if people forget to change their address, as they often do, the ballot or the application for an absentee ballot may simply go to the wrong place. And that's a more serious problem than the delivery of the mail. And how is that being addressed? Well, um, frankly, uh, people are trying to update voter rolls, but it's a very difficult process because particularly in poorer neighborhoods, people do move a lot. So civic groups and political campaigns and political parties are trying to make sure that the voter rolls are very much up to date so that people can get their ballot if they don't want to go to the polling place. And then if everybody gets the ballot and they mail it back, those have to be counted. And I would think that is very different to counting it at the polling places. So what are the ideas to tackle an increase in mail-in ballots? Well, the big idea is simply to have states purchase more scanners, more machines for counting these ballots, and to hire more people to do it. It is pretty clear that we may not know the results of the election on election night the way we usually do. It may take even up to a week to count all these ballots. That's what happened in a few primaries in New York State just in this past month. So everybody's used to, you know, 
staying up till 11 o'clock or midnight on election night and, and seeing the results and then going to bed. Well, this time it may take days or even as long as a week because there will be so many absentee ballots. Are you concerned that that might undermine the trust in the results or the trust in democratic processes? No, on the contrary. Um, what paper ballots do, remember, we're going to have a lot of old-fashioned paper ballots. They will be sent to secure locations, which are heavily guarded. And frankly, the ironic thing about this is that in 2016, we saw massive Russian interference in our election. We know that in 2016, the Russians were attempting to break into state voter systems, obviously with the idea of perhaps changing some of the votes electronically. People were very, very worried about that. And states began to adopt paper ballots almost as receipts so that there would be a paper trail for the votes. And that was before COVID-19. So ironically, the insecurities from electronic voting at polling places are somewhat ameliorated by the fact that we're going to have so many paper ballots. The beauty of paper ballots is you can recount them and recount them. And in a way that you can't do with something that's electronic and leaves no trace. And so frankly, I think this will be a safer and more secure election even than the one we had four years ago. Wow. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But I found another type of concern or fear that I'm a little curious about. Some voters are concerned that if they mail their ballot, it's going to get lost or it's never going to go anywhere. Well, things do get lost in the mail. That is simply a fact of life. Um, the United States Postal Service, however, has a rule that says they will deliver a ballot even if someone forgot to put the postage on it. So the Postal Service has been quite good about delivering the ballots. And what some states have done, and we're encouraging more states to do this, is to say that they will count a ballot that is received even after Election Day, as long as it was postmarked Election Day. So suppose you, you vote uh, your absentee ballot on election day and you, you put it in the mailbox, right? And it's postmarked that day, but somehow the mail is slow. Maybe it goes to the wrong place, et cetera, and it doesn't get there for three or four days. Many states are already saying, yes, we will count the ballots that arrive later. And I think that's the right thing to do because stuff happens, right? No system is foolproof. And when you're looking at 100 million votes, of which maybe 50 million are going to be by mail, um, you know, stuff's going to happen. So I think the states, by saying that they will count absentee ballots that arrive after Election Day, um, I think they're doing the right thing. Now, all of this costs money. And I know that uh, $400 million have been allocated for elections by Congress. And I heard that most states have pretty much spent that money already. What did they spend the money for in particular? Well, the first thing they spent the money for was hardening their computer operations. 
because the fear of hacking is still very, very prevalent. Their printing costs are going to increase dramatically. They already have because they're going to be doing many more mailings of ballots and mailings of applications. So that's going to cost them more money. And of course, they're going to have to buy more scanners to count the ballots. They're going to have to hire more people just to to work this out. So there's just a lot of architecture that is going to go into this election that they have to um, move forward on. 400 million on the one end sounds like a lot, you know, to people like you and me who probably will never have 400 million dollars, but but for an election, <laughs> I'm guessing it's not not enough. So what what would you or would other experts say how much money will be required to really get all states ready for safe voting in a pandemic? Well, the Brennan Center in New York, which studies voting very well, has said that it would take two billion dollars. So four hundred million is, you know, less than a quarter of the way there. But nobody really knows, of course. And the there is probably going to be another stimulus bill coming out of Congress, and the hope is that that bill will add some more money to the states for their election systems. And then some states, as you mentioned before, try to to change some regulations or rules to make it easier for people to mail their ballots or even get the ballots sent home. How much time do they have to still change any regulations for the upcoming election? Well, probably a few more months. I mean, by October 1st, They've got to have their plans done, their regulations done, etc. Right now, there's a lot of lawsuits being filed. President Trump, for reasons that elude almost everyone, has decided that mail-in ballots are terrible and are corrupt, which there's absolutely no evidence for. And people are kind of shaking their heads over this one because, frankly, a lot of Republican voters vote absentee and always have. So, you know, once again, people are just shaking their heads and are mystified by Trump. He's confusing a lot of things. There are a lot of lawsuits, state by state, county by county. And as those get settled, they will they will get settled, you know, before October 1st, because they have to be. Um, as those get settled, the regulations will fall in place. That's why in our scorecard, we are constantly updating. We're going to update it every Friday just because things are still fluid. So that means also that all of those lawsuits will one way or another affect the way that people can access the ballot. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Even before the pandemic, there were several obstacles to exercise the right for vote in the United States, depending on which states you live in. When you look at uh, the global picture As far as you know it, how do the U.S. compare to what you've seen in other countries in terms of access to the ballot? Well, the the biggest problem, and this is almost never discussed, the biggest problem with access to the ballot in the United States is that we have this tradition of holding elections on Tuesday on a workday. And most of the other democracies either make Election Day a holiday 
or they have elections held on a weekend, on a Saturday or a Sunday when people aren't working. So what really holds down American participation is this business of having elections held on a work day. In addition, in some states, there are attempts, and some of them have been successful, to just make voting harder, especially for poor people, especially for African Americans. Um, you know, requiring identification. Uh, frankly, everybody requires identification. You do have to sign in and people have to know that you live there and you're an actual citizen. But some states have gone way beyond that, requiring several forms of government identification, which people often don't have. There's a lot of subtle attempts to suppress the vote mostly by the Republican Party and mostly directed at the African-American community because that community will be more vulnerable to these attempts than other people. That brings me to another thing I wanted to discuss with you, which is called gerrymandering. So we have a lot of polarization between Republicans and Democrats right now, for instance, over the issue of mail-in ballots, as you said earlier. So I was wondering, how does gerrymandering in general contribute to the polarization between parties, or is there no link at all? Well, it is an important contributor. The reason is that when congressional districts are dominated by one party or the other, the entire contest in that district is in the primary, not in the November election. And in the primary, only Democrats can vote in Democratic primaries, Republicans vote in Republican primaries. And what tends to happen in these districts is that the most conservative person will win in a Republican district, the most liberal person will win in a Democratic district. And then because the districts are so lopsided, um, whoever wins the primary is basically the winner of the general election. So, for instance, one of the most well-known left-wing congresswomen, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she's in a district that winning the primary is winning the general election because Republicans simply are not competitive in that district. And there's Republican districts that are the same. Now, what that does then is it sends people to Congress who are either further to the left or further to the right than the rest of the public. And they then try to pull their parties in that direction. And that creates the polarization and sustains the polarization. Yeah, that makes sense. So the moderates don't get a chance in this system. Well, in some districts, they do. If a district is competitive, then both parties know and both parties' voters know that they can't vote their heart, they have to vote their head, right? They can't just find the most conservative person. They have to find somebody who they think can win who's kind of conservative. So there are districts that send moderates to Congress, but not that many. And then one of the ideas to end gerrymandering, or restricted at least, is to give responsibility for electing districts to independent commissions. How has this idea that has been floating around for a while been adopted or even implemented so far? 
Um, not Some states have done it. It seems to make somewhat of a difference in creating competitive districts. But there is a second problem. And the second problem here is that in the modern era, people tend to move to places where there are other people like them. So for instance, if you're gay and you want to go to a place where you can walk down the street, if you're a man with your boyfriend and hold hands. And so not surprisingly, there are sections of American cities and states where lots of gay and lesbian people prefer to live for obvious reasons, right? If you are homeschooling your children and you're very conservative evangelical Christian, you want to live in a neighborhood or in a city at least where there's a lot of other homeschoolers so that your children can have a social life, people to play with, etc. So people tend to move and create communities of like-minded people. And that, of course, has political consequences. So with reform of how the districts are drawn, you can do some changes to gerrymandering, but there, there will still be places that are very, very liberal and places that are very, very conservative, that gerrymandering or cha- you know changing how you draw the lines isn't really going to have a huge impact. So what's the way out? Well, there is no way out of that. I mean, if people who believe similar things want to live together, they want to live together and you are going to draw congressional districts that include them. There's no way out of that. You can, however, when people draw the gerrymandering does not refer to all districts. Remember, not all of the Congress is gerrymandered. It's only a portion of the Congress where they draw the lines in really, really weird ways. So some of these districts look like a snake because they try to get all the African-American voters in one district and they don't all live in one district or they're not enough to make up a district. You have to look at a map to understand what's gerrymandered and what's not. Yeah, I did. Yeah, right. And you thought you probably saw some of them, right? Yes. Some look really, they have very odd shapes. Right. That's a gerrymandered district. All right. So in closing, back to the overall topic of safe uh, election and access to ballots, What do you really consider crucial to ensure that everybody has the opportunity to exercise their right to vote? Well, two things. You have to have absentee ballots. You have to make them as easy to get and as easy to fill in and return as possible. So getting rid of things like requiring a notary, which you really don't need, because you've got an address, you've got a voter on the rolls, et cetera. You don't need a notary. Those things could help a lot. But you also have to have a sufficient number of polling places so that people who either don't want to vote absentee or, you know, they get their ballot and they lose it and then it's election day and they can't find their ballot. I mean, all of this stuff happens, right? So those people can actually go to a polling place and vote. So the difficulty American states are having is that you really need to do both. One of the problems we saw during the primaries was states had this huge number of requests for absentee ballots. They assumed that everybody who'd asked for an absentee ballot was going to return it and they wouldn't need as many polling places. 
Well, a lot of people didn't return their ballots through the mail, and they went to the polling places to vote, and there were very, very long lines, which is, of course, exactly what you want to avoid at any point in time, but you especially want to avoid it during a pandemic. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, and then time is up, and then I saw the pictures of people demanding access, and, and they said this polling place was closed. Well, then, but then, by the way, they did go to court and they reopened it. Uh, the courts will almost always err on the side of opening the polling places. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, remember, in, in an American election, you have 50 states. Within those states, there's thousands of counties. And guess what? There are thousands of lawyers. <laughs> And they are ready there to run to court. And that's what we saw happen in the primaries. And we will see it happening even more in the general election if things go wrong. Well, that's promising, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, I mean, think about it this way. You have a lot of people interested in making sure this goes smoothly. You have the political parties. You have all the candidates on the ballot. It's not just Donald Trump on the ballot. In typical Trumpian fashion, he thinks he's the only person on the ballot. That's not the case. There's a lot of people interested in making sure that their voters vote. And there's also a lot of people interested in making sure that no one interferes with their voters voting. And that creates a lot of watchdogs. And that, frankly, helps the process be honest. Yeah, that's a good way to end this interview. Uh, Ms. K. Mark, thank you very, very much for your time. And I learned a lot. Well, thank you, Petrina. That was Elaine K. Mark, Director of the Center for Effective Public Management at Brookings Institution, about her report called Voting by Mail in the Pandemic, a State-by-State Scorecard. You'll find a link to her work and this report in the show notes to this podcast episode. You'll also find a link to basic information about what you need to do in your state in order to be all set to vote on November 3rd. Because, spoiler alert, there are quite a bunch of obstacles. That's what you'll hear about in the next part of this mini-series when I'll talk to voting rights expert Kat Calvin. But don't fret, as Elaine just said, there are quite a bunch of civic organizations doing their best to tackle these obstacles, and we'll talk about how to help make sure everyone can exercise their right to vote in the US. I hope you'll stick around. Meanwhile, if you like this podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe to Notes from America so you don't miss a new episode.